Hey everyone, and welcome to episode four of Self-Esteem, where I'm talking to Philip Ellis, an author, journalist, and editor. Now, Phil's latest novel, Love and Other Scams, has just been released worldwide, and he's currently working on book number two. Here we discuss childhood escapism, how Phil has used creativity as a foundation to support his own well-being, and why not all creativity should be monetized. We also explore the power of finding your niche and how there's beauty to be found in harnessing your imagination. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Can you introduce yourself to everybody listening? Give us a bit of context as to who you are and what you're all about. Uh, Yeah, sure thing. My name is Philip Ellis. I am an author, a journalist, uh, an editor, writer for Men's Health magazine. Uh, I've just released my debut novel uh, called Love and Other Scams uh, here in the UK and in the US. Can you give everybody a bit of a background on your personal creative journey? Um, Kind of, let's take take us back to the start. How did you get to where you are now, um, where you are creatively now? Um, So... I've just always, from like as long as I can remember, I've always loved stories and storytelling, um, whether that was, you know, bedtime stories from my mum or, you know, uh, like the teacher reading to the class, um, you know, learning to read, like immersing myself in books um, from a very, very young age and just sort of being, yeah, like absolutely losing myself in you know, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe or Alice in Wonderland or, or whatever. Basically, as soon as I realised that that was a, some, like that people had to write those stories, that there were people behind these magic books, I just sort of started making stuff up myself. And yeah, I, I you know, get lost in completely imaginary worlds. I was a real, real daydreamer. Well, I was going to ask that. At what point did you realise that stories were something for you was it a sense of kind of escapism or oh yeah i like i would completely get lost like anything could be happening in the room and i would not be aware of it because i would just be sat with my nose in the book and i would be so completely absorbed um and transported i think yeah that makes it sound like i was escaping a really grim situation and it's like i had a very very normal childhood but i just yeah like i think it's you know because life was quite ordinary and you know life can be quite boring um, it was just really, really fun to be like, oh yeah, but what if like this was real? What if this was happening? And it was much more exciting. And so, yeah, like I always just sort of felt that the things happening on the inside of my head were more fun and, uh, and exhilarating than, you know, the everyday life of getting up and going to school and eating my tea and doing my homework and, you know, fighting with my brother and all that normal stuff. So you were very imaginative as a child? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of came out in lots of different forms, you know, drawing and, and um, making things, writing, making up like stories before I could write and then writing them. Just like, you know, every like arts and crafts kit yeah. possible, like my room is full of them. Yeah. When did it occur to you that you could write stories like that? Probably at school. Um, I think... What sort of age are we talking? Ooh, maybe like late primary school. Like, what, that'd be like 9, 10? Yeah. Or maybe maybe even a little bit earlier, like being in school plays and sort of, even as a, as a child, bringing that extra little bit of camp judge to, uh, to whatever I was doing in, in a school play. And then sort of any time, you know, we had a writing assignment in class when it's like, write a story with this, this and this in it. I just sort of found that like the teacher found mine more enjoyable <laughs> than maybe some of the others. And it was just something that even if I wasn't necessarily very good at it, I just got so much joy out of it. 
Because it was just making stuff up and, and asking, like, what if? As children, we generally seem to be a lot more kind of physically creative or expressive. Like, you just picked up on being in plays or wanting to, like, act or... And again, it comes mm. back to storytelling and it comes back to kind of almost, like, being very adventurous in kind of your mind. But what was it about drama specifically that engaged you? I don't know, actually. I mean, cause, because I was really quite shy. So it wasn't necessarily like being on stage or having that attention. Um, okay. That came much later. Um, it, I think it was maybe the um, the excitement of getting to, to pretend that I was somebody else and, and sort of act, you know, it's basically you're acting out a story it's it's you know it's it's pretending like and it, these these were school plays it would be things like you know pinocchio and cinderella and it's like oh god like we're like that disney film that we've all seen like we're we're in it now and we're yeah. doing out we're doing our own version of it it's like you know when you'd see a film and then you'd act it out with your friends on the playground i think it's just sort of your way of like making sense of it and figuring out like well what was my favorite bit and why is that my favorite bit yeah it was just sort of the, the most fun and it was something that i carried on doing um and also like you know um what you just said about like children being encouraged more maybe than adults to be expressive in very different ways. You know, there's an after school club for everything. There's art, there's mm-hmm. drama, there's music, there's, you know, pottery or dance or whatever. And I think everyone has like some form of expression in them. And I think those those sorts of avenues are great for figuring out like what your medium or what your kind of form is going to be in terms of like this, this is going to be the thing that like, helps you make sense of the world and it's going to be the way that you, you know, sort of hash out all the ideas that are bubbling away in your head just in like a very, very simplistic form that, you know, can be accessible to kids. Because for kids, it's all just a bit of fun. Um, And, you know, you might not necessarily realise that this is going to be something that's going to be very meaningful to you later in life. I assume initially it was the reading that sparked your interest. I assume writing didn't come first. You would have, <laughs> you would have had to have read first, but what, like, what was it about the reading that you first began to realise, oh, this is something that I care about? That's a really interesting question. And I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think it was just, I think maybe it, it just scratched a niche that I didn't know I had. Okay. Um, where, yeah, like stories, I just, and, and, and you know, I, I, I loved you know, like films for this for the same reason, you know, sort of like Disney fairy tales or like, you know, whatever, Star Wars, stuff like that. Um, I think just like big grand adventures. And again, I think it's make things that were larger than life, larger than real life. So anything was possible, sort of vanishing into a world where, you know, magic was real, animals can talk or there's spaceships or aliens or whatever. Um, it was just sort of like, having fun and exploring all those different possibilities. And yeah, the, then the writing came and everything I wrote was very much like whatever I'd read last, um, but I would have changed the name. So it was, so I thought I was making up something really original. So I'm sure I wrote my own version of like The Worst Witch and I wrote my own version of The Little Mermaid and I, I wrote my own version of uh, of like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And it's like, it was, you know, if you could sue a child, um, you would. Um, and And then sort of, it was then like into secondary school as I got older and as I read more and like more broadly and more diversely, that's when sort of the original ideas started to come because you only get original ideas if you're sort of, I think, exposed to more than just a very narrow sort of canon of stuff. Well, I guess you also have to have some form of life experience. To, I guess, well, actually, no, maybe I maybe I'll take this back. I was I was going to say to be able to write something that's not fantasy, but I would I would mm. argue that even to write something to do with fantasy 
you would need to have experienced emotion. Well, to do it well. To do it, yeah. to do it I think well. to, to, to tell any kind of story, um, like and whether it's fantasy or horror or, or really gritty realism, the job first and foremost is to like make the reader you know, really give a crap and, and believe that it's real and get invested in what's happening on the page in front of them. Then the sort of, you know, the, the dragons and the magic or whatever can come after that. But if, if you don't believe that the, the characters are real, you're not going to believe anything else. And I think that comes with, yeah, being able to write um, or, or portray characters who have very like real inner emotional lives. And so, yeah, obviously like the, the more life experience you have and the more you've lived, the more you've experienced, then that's going to be... Um, it's going to come more naturally. So you discovered reading and storytelling at a young age in school. You you then moved on to writing in secondary school. Tell us a little bit about that. At what point did you start to discover, oh, actually, maybe I could be quite good at this? Um, so I'm going to be the real cliche of every gay man now and just be like, oh, I just love my English teacher. <laughs> I love my English teacher <laughs> it's, as well. It's a real thing. Um, I think a lot of a lot of queer people and a lot of creative people and a lot of creative queer people um, have this have, will have very fond memories of some kind of teacher, whether it's an art teacher, a music teacher, a drama teacher, English teacher, where it's like a, a good teacher has a real gift for spotting the students in their class who have a, who have a, like a knack for something or an affinity or a, or a passion for something, and then really nurturing it and encouraging it. You know, because like a lot a lot of creative writing assignments in class, you know, like you'll hear the groan from a lot of kids of like, oh God, this is boring. I don't know how to do it, whatever. And I'd be like, right, okay, I've got, well, I've got a bank of ideas in my head. I, I, oh, I'm going to nail this. And yeah, having sort of uh, teachers who would encourage that and then, you know, offer to to read anything that I'd written and, and, and offer feedback that was like constructive, but in a way that wouldn't be heartbreaking to a child, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and giving it, more credit and consideration than whatever drivel it was deserved um, because they knew that this, you know, could be something that would be really meaningful to me later on. Um, so, yeah, so my, like my, my teachers 100% like sort of, I think, clocked that, you know, I was maybe just a little bit more interested in it. It's maybe not necessarily better, um, but just that it meant more to me than, than maybe to some of my peers. And, yeah, just really uh, played a role in kind of making sure that I that I didn't get that beaten out of me, you know, because sometimes you can be naturally good at something, but if it's not considered cool by your friends, then you sort of like give it up or pretend that you don't like it. And I think it's important that you don't do that. Aside of the kind of physical manifestation of your creativity through writing, were you doing anything else that would be considered creative at the time? Um, I used to love to draw. Okay. So art. Yeah, loved art. Um, not very good at that. Uh, have, have since given it up. <laughs> I mean, define good. What, what is, are you talking about drawing realistic pictures? Yeah, yeah. Like the things I drew did not look like what they were supposed to be. They don't need to. This is true. Um, but also I I had no patience for like, you know, cubism or whatever. I love it now. Um, but at the time I was like, oh, well, I don't really get that. And that's a bit weird and a bit boring. And no, like a, like a painting of a piece of fruit should look like a piece of fruit. <laughs> Well, actually, I'm interested between the, the difference that you saw at that young age between art, which on one kind of polar end of the spectrum is hyper-conceptual. And what I always find really interesting is we look at art and we go, well, I'm no good at that because I can't draw something that's realistic. But then on the flip side of that, we also go, I don't know if I understand it because it's so out there 
And those those two kind of things are the antithesis of each other because one is a very kind of documentary kind of portrait of something. Yeah. And one is essentially just an idea that's coming to life. But what what was it about art in particular that you were like, no, actually, this isn't for me? I can't even remember like at what point I stopped drawing. I think I, I used to really, really like the thing I used to love was, you know, I would fill uh notepads with like you know the stories i was writing and then i would illustrate them myself oh okay and i think that's you know because that, that would have been like maybe early secondary school because that was like you know or, or late primary like that's the books i was reading you know like if you're reading one of the chronicles of narnia like you'll turn a page and like there'll be a picture and i, I think i just i really enjoyed the idea of like well i'm gonna write a book like that and then sort of the older i got it was draw- i think drawing stuff just like that i'd seen in films um you know trying to draw the Starship Voyager or whatever. And then I, I think with that, it was, I think perhaps, but that was more a case of like, I stopped doing that because that was where my creative expression got very nerdy and it wasn't very cool. And I allowed myself to think, oh, well, that's not cool. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, whereas with the writing, I sort of never really stopped doing that. It kind of comes back to ego. I didn't want to do that because I didn't think I would seem to be good at that. Yeah. I know what good looks like. This is not worth me trying to do because I know I will be better placed over here. Yeah, and it's like as a as a child and as a young teenager, any kind of creative pursuit you do, like you're not going to be great at it. And you like all creative pursuits are a little bit weird. And I think you need to be given space to be weird and to try things and to sort of, you know, maybe, you know, it might feel embarrassing. You might be really, really self-conscious. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do that when you're also like so obsessed with the idea of fitting in and having friends and not being the outsider. Well, creative life is a creative life pursuit in terms of trying to make it a vocation, trying to make it a career or thinking you want to do that is quite unorthodox in itself. Like, you know, you generally will have that discussion with parents of like, well, what are you going to, what are you going to use that for? How oh my God. Do that? Did you yeah. have those those conversations with your parents i did yes yeah. so and my stepdad was a gravely practical man uh who <laughs> like like literally just no imagination whatsoever um so yeah the idea that i was going to grow up and and write stories for a living uh was like inconceivable to him <laughs> it's so true like it happens like i remember when i when i turned around to kind of get into that age of I mean, i'm kind of aligning with your timeline in the story at the moment but getting to that age where you're finishing secondary school and you're making those kind of serious life decisions oh yeah yeah you know those decisions that you make when you're 16 are gonna change the rest of your life the pressure that we put on literal babies oh it's ridiculous like oh this is the most important decision you're ever gonna make i I, I can't remember why i chose what subjects although i was like well i'm gonna do english and the rest don't really matter you know to be fair i was quite lucky where my mum was like do you know what you're intellectual enough to work this out on your own like you do you but what are you going to use photography for? Mm. It was like one of those, like, how, what, what do you mean? And I was like, you know, trying to do like psychology and Spanish on the side. <laughs> and I was just like, well, I've got no time to What a like... chaotic mix of subjects. I know. Well, but actually, funnily enough, it's quite interesting that psychology was an interest at some point in time because I really like to have conversations like this. But um, I feel like it all comes full circle. But those conversations of what are you going to use that for? Like those creative thoughts around or the, the thoughts around taking creativity as a career i think people find that hard to understand it's really interesting to look back on it now as well because it, yeah it would be a case of well whatever subject you do 
has to, you know, at some point lead to, you know, getting you a job opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you know, every, every like, you know, the choice of degree you do should be relevant to like what career you want to have. And creativity and, and creative pursuits are great, but like, you know, you can do that in your free time and maybe you'll make some money on the side, like selling pictures or selling stories, but you need to have a, a day job. And now it's like the absolute reverse where because since, you know, you and I were teenagers, you know, a very short time ago, Social media has just transformed everything so that now anyone with a smartphone thinks they can turn their creativity into a career. Like, and that's the default before yep. they start to consider other job options. It's like, right, well, I make music, so I'm going to, you know, create an account on on TikTok or Spotify or, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and, you know, go viral with something and try and turn that into an opportunity. Um, and in a way, it's been a great leveler and a great sort of it's democratized things. But another in another way, it's like it's made it really, really difficult to get work because like the marketplace is so much more flooded with really mediocre stuff because everyone thinks that they now have the opportunity to be creative as like their day job. As a default. Yes. So, oh, no, actually, do you know what? I don't need to worry about that because I'll just be a content creator. Yeah. And I just feel like on one hand, and this is interesting because Joe and I had a chat in episode two about the problematic nature of social media with Mm. some positives and I would agree with you, actually, that I think that on one hand, social media has done an amazing thing at showing young people, especially, creative thinking is of value. And also, like, the weirder and more niche you are, actually, the more likely you are to really gain, like, attraction and find a community and, and sort of be celebrated for your work. Because yeah. the stuff on TikTok that, you know, the teens are coming up with, like, the more polished and sort of like made for the masses it is like the more boring it is it's really like the the freaks who are rising to the top and it's great to see your take on that's really interesting because i what i would have my go-to would have been on one hand what you say i i think is is absolutely right but then on the other hand i'd argue that are we just trying to promote people being wild and wacky for this currency of likes. And again, back to this idea of like personal ego, which is related back to like what we put back into society. You Mm. are successful if you get likes. You are doing well in your life if you've got a big following. Mm, that's the, yeah. that's the negative side of it. I like your take on it. I'll we'll take that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no. I, th- I think what you're saying has uh, has has merit too. It's like yeah, the because um, then you at least that leads to a culture of people doing more and more unhinged stuff for clout. Cla- yeah, clout is like clout, clout chasing. It's a it's a disease. Uh, yeah, like you know when you when you're walking through a city center and you just see men in North Face jackets and like podcast mics just trying to like vox pop people. It's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. No, <laughs> no and I think, you know, there's a time and a place for that sort of stuff. But to, to bring it back round to this idea of experience and learning, going into kind of creative pursuits for a vocation without just falling into it by default and going, I'm going to be on TikTok or I'm going to be on Twitch, but actually having an understanding that you want to have substance to your creativity, that there's... A, a sense of intellect behind it that you've you've got an opinion behind your work i think that's that's for me what matters about it i think this whole side of social media is great because it it shows people that they should be creative which i don't think is something that we've had well we definitely didn't have when we were growing up it was like like you said oh well, you can you can do it as a hobby 
Yeah. And if you're lucky... Like, not everyone gets to be, you know, Stephen King or Marion Keys or, you know... Well, and still not everybody does. Yeah. But back in the day, it would have been, so don't even try. And that was the attitude that my stepdad had. It's like, right. well, if you put your head above, above the parapet, you'll just be bitterly disappointed. So don't, like, it's worth not, you know, not even trying, um, which is like just the worst possible attitude. Um, and I hate it. <laughs> you, mm. you didn't let that affect your passions. No, no, I'm not very good at listening to people, to be honest. Um, I just, I, and I think it's when you've got something in your head that needs to be let out, you just have to let it out. That is such a, a beautiful way to, to put it about creativity, right? It, we all have things to say. Let's find a way to express that in a way that isn't maybe offensive or crap or, you know, going against the grain for clout. Like, let's use oh, it yeah. in a way not, that not, not, not being like, you know, an edgelord or something where because you have the right to say everything and because you have a, a, a space and a platform in which to say anything, that means you should say something. Um, it's like, well... It took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to say. Yeah. I had all different ideas in my head. Most of them, most of them were like half, really half-baked. <laughs> but that's kind of, you know, that's the beautiful thing about having a brain. You know, you get to sit and let it cook for a little bit. I mean, obviously I was a teenager, so I said a lot of really, really, really dumb stuff. But Twitter and Instagram weren't around at the time. So all of that's lost to, uh, to the ether. Um, and I will, I will I, it makes me sound really old, but I'm really, really glad that I grew up where these things weren't so ubiquitous because otherwise my terrible early writing and my like really ill-informed early opinions would still be out there and as it is um you know nobody remembers cemented in the digital landscape forever yeah i wasn't carving my dumb 18 year old takes into the side of a temple wall (laughs) (laughs) literally so okay so you didn't listen to your stepdad which is brilliant because now you've got a debut novel but at what point following that and you're kind of leaning into early on trying to find a career where do you go from there well not surprised anyone to hear that i worked in a lot of bars um, my mum owned a cafe and i was like um the i was the tea boy um from the age of about 13 you know the the pot washer whatever which also okay sidebar i think everybody growing up should have a job and service because it just builds character like you you have to work in some kind of customer facing capacity because A, it's great inspiration. You will see the very best and the very worst of humanity in those kinds of jobs. So it's just like you are learning about the human spirit yep. and its capacity for cruelty. <laughs> so, yeah, lots and lots of service jobs. And, and, and also a big fan of um, early jobs where, you know, you can kind of turn your brain off a little bit. You know, you're, you're making cups of tea, you're pulling pints, but your mind is elsewhere. You're daydreaming, you're working on an idea. Yep. Um, you're sort of only half physically present funnily enough at my book party just the other day my mum reminded me she's like oh do you remember all those days when you'd be like wiping down tables in the cafe and you were just somewhere else i was like yeah i was i was astral projecting <laughs> into like the life i wanted to have i mean we won't get on to manifesting just yet oh. <laughs> magical thinking yeah, yeah yeah so like yeah in terms of like practically like how to make money and and sort of support myself i was a very good bartender and very good waiter because i'm just really interested in people so it's really it came quite naturally to me just to you know to chat to people also it was very good like when i was younger for overcoming shyness you know you have to talk to people and then i realized that actually yeah like everyone's got a story and you would meet some really weird people fun and interesting people you'd meet some really boring people as well all have their place absolutely you know we we live in a society 
Um, and I think what I originally kind of envisioned for myself was, like, oh, well, I'll work in like, you know, pubs and restaurants and, you know, do this job that I'm quite good at. And I do quite enjoy, but it's like, you know, it, it doesn't like light my soul on fire. Um, and then I'll like write my stories in the spare time and I'll use all of this as like inspiration. And I do still at some point want to write something set in the world of like kitchens and chefs because those are complicated people <laughs> but yeah yeah so that, and, I, and I was sort of like that was you know I would have been 20 21 at this time and I thought yeah no that'll do that'll yeah that works and it's practical my parents won't be like worried about how I'm gonna be living because like they see I have what they see as a, a real job a and stable a, job. a stable job um working in hospitality who Not would ever stable. who would ever think that yeah um and then I, my mum actually um, cut an ad, I was, so I was still living at home, and my mum cut an ad out of uh, the local newspaper, the Telford Journal, um, for a copywriting job at a new business that had just started up. And she was like, well, yeah, you know, you can use your writing. And it was like the least creative job I've ever had. It was like, it was writing ad copy and like online sales copy for adult incontinence pads. I, w- I will not uh, trash talk it because I, I really liked everyone I worked with and he, my first boss was a, 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 a strange man uh, a kind of like a ruthless entrepreneur but he did I learned a lot from him I learned a lot about ways to behave and, and ways to work and then I learned a, a few things also about how I didn't want to be which I'd say are probably more important oh 100% yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was very, again in terms of like uh, just collecting strange and bizarre experiences it was kind of invaluable for that so I did that for two and a half years and then one of the people I worked with who I'd become really really good friends with and she was like a bit of a mentor to me she quit to go freelance as a writer doing like writing resumes and doing like blogging and copywriting on a freelance basis and I was like oh I I didn't know you could do that I sort of knew that freelancing was a thing like hypothetically but I had no idea how you went about like getting clients you know I was I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I was maybe 23, 24. Okay. Um, when I basically, uh, this 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 friend that I'd worked with, Libby, um, she was like, oh, well, I can introduce you to like the person I work with. You know, she, she has tons of work. Like she needs extra help. Like, would you be interested in that? So I, for I think maybe a few months, I sort of moon, I was moonlighting doing that on top of my day job. And I was like, oh, this is like, more interesting and more challenging i think I'd, I'd reached the end of the road at that job where it was no longer about even writing it was about like looking at google adwords on a spreadsheet and it just was not for me at all um so this was like it was a new challenge it was a bit more exciting so i, I, I so i just like I, I quit i started doing that and then i did that for a year or two and then i started building like more clients doing like writing blog posts for people and doing odds and ends and and this was like Oh God, like 11 years ago and uh, sort of very, very slowly over a very, very long amount of time sort of built the career that I have now. And that was using writing as a day job. But within that time, you were still writing for you on the side. I was and I wasn't. So I, I when I had the the full time job um, at the company, I was going home and I was writing every single night at my tiny house share in Shrewsbury because I had all this like unused mental energy and I was just like, I was kind of phoning in the job um, by the end. So I, I wrote like tons of short stories and I wrote like a sort of half a novel. And then once I started doing the writing for my day job, 
like as in freelancing that sort of did stop because all of my mental energy and 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 a lot of my creative energy was just going into this is the work that's going to keep a roof over your head so this is why this is where your attention needs to be i think that's a really important thing to touch on though as well because there's so often we have these kind of rose tinted glasses around i'm going to be a writer i'm going to be a photographer i'm going to have this creative career and actually the no parameter creative career of just being an artist <laughs> i'm flourishing my hand as i do that it doesn't actually really happen you end mm. up having to settle oh yeah it, it, it's it's just um you learn to manage your expectations mm. in a way that you never and, and by manage i mean like lower them and then lower them and then lower them again uh in a way that you never thought you'd have to because yeah you always envision this sort of um very bohemian you know sort of free life but in the real world you need to pay your rent and buy food <laughs> at the very minimum uh, and so like when i my, my my friends whenever i would like talk about it they're like oh like, like it's so exciting and it's like well it is and i'm lucky in a way that like i get to do the thing i'm good at yep um but i'm you know i'm i'm, I'm writing like soulless corporate copy just to keep a roof over my head. And, you know, you sort of, it's like this very piecemeal existence of bits and bits and bits of gigs that like never really come together to form a, a, a proper wage. And it was like that for quite a long time. But then obviously, like, you know, you know, the more you do it, the more people you meet, the better you get at what you do. And I was very, very fortunate that I met some of the right people at the right time, got some bigger clients and then some bigger clients. And then the sort of the the blogging for, for companies turned into like more actual journalism and more like freelance writing assignments for very, very small digital magazines and then bigger digital magazines. And then, you know, um, Huffington Post and, and then, and sort of more actual publications. Um, so for the last several years, it was just like sort of full-time freelance journalist rather than like, Oh, I'm just going to, I'll do any old work for any old money. In those first initial stages, your creativity wasn't being used as a creative outlet. It was being used as a functional task. Yes. The oh, fact yeah. that you could write wasn't, it wasn't was, about your creativity. It was about the fact that you could put words on a page and somebody needed words on a page. It, it was, yeah, it was a skill. And I think the creativity, uh, the creative part was just me figuring out how to use that as a marketable skill that could get me money. Yeah. But yeah, like in terms of the actual work itself, there was... To begin with, at least, there was very little creativity. It was just very much like, and I, well, and I, I suppose there's there's creativity in terms of just like being able to write a sentence that's more pleasing to read or more un, easily understandable. You know, making a slightly com complex subject more accessible to you know a reader. I think that there is creativity that goes into that sort of process, but it wasn't like an artistic pursuit at all. Yeah. And then when you moved into this world, which was more journalism, at that point, you start to be able to bring your own point of view into it and your own perspective and your own ideas into it. Yeah. And like, you know, you're, when, you, when you're actually pitching, you're not just replying to like, a, uh, you know, you're not bidding on a job per se, but you're, you're coming up with your own ideas. You're trying to pitch, you know, articles and essays and columns. And it's very much like, oh, well, what is my point of view on this? What, what, is, what do I want to say? And then, you know, working through like, what's the best way to say it? And then, and then actually starting to work with editors rather than just like 
submitting copy that get you know that the CEO doesn't care about and just hits post on. But like working with other people who do this for a living and they're able to help you figure out how to tell that story in the most compelling way. And then, you know, you just get better and better at your craft through that as well. All of those things as stepping stones up until the moment that you decide, I want to be an author. Maybe you've always thought that all along, but at what point did you then use everything that you'd learned and really start putting that into, this is now what I want to do. Did you know that that was what you wanted to do at that point? Oh, like from childhood, the, the goal was I want to write books. It was just, uh, especially during like the early freelance years, I didn't have the time or the energy to sit down and write a book. I also had like a hundred ideas and I couldn't settle on one. So for a really long time, I wrote short stories and I spent a lot of money and time sort of submitting those stories to different competitions and journals and, you know, um, prizes and stuff. And never really got anywhere. Like I was sort of shortlisted for one or two. Um, and I thought I was, I, I thought I was really good. Um, but it was just sort of like, it was something I did. And, and you know, it was, a, it was, it was a worthwhile pursuit in that I really enjoyed the process of writing them. I still think that some of those stories are quite good. Um, but, I think I was trying to, my mistake was I was trying to um, be part of a very literary, serious world, but the stories I was writing were a little bit pulpy and very commercial. And just like, I felt like, yeah, I was like, oh, I I don't really fit here. I I feel like I'm trying to, am I ever going to fit into this like sort of serious, you know, cultured world? And the change that happened was basically during lockdown, I realized that I didn't want to be part of that world because it took itself so seriously. And, you know, obviously during the pandemic, we were all just like absorbing media that helped us escape. You know, we were all binge watching, you know, rom-coms on Netflix or, you know, whatever, just anything to take us out of our our current situation. To begin with, I I read like a ton of like doorstopper literary novels because I was like, oh, I'm never going to have the time to actually sit down and read this again. And I read a few and I really, really enjoyed them. And then I was like, oh, actually, no, like what my brain really needs is like a hot bath. So then I would I would read um, like thrillers and romance novels and comic novels. And I was like, oh, this is like bringing me so much more joy. And I'm actually like reading for pleasure again. Was that similar to how you felt back in those early school days when you began reading? A little bit, like getting that sense of excitement back. Mm. Yeah. And being like, oh, I'm, I'm like speeding through this book and you know like uh i don't know if you ever did this but i would sometimes like after i was supposed to be asleep i would like turn my bedside light on and put it on under the duvet yeah. so i could keep reading it, it was really like that like staying up until two in the morning reading um so i and reading like a, a book in one sitting during lockdown was like a, a really common thing for me and it did sort of rewire my brain a little bit and i was like oh no actually what i want to do is write something that people are able to have like fun with and that's exciting and enjoyable for them um, especially at a time when I think like stuff that helps you escape was so in demand. And that's basically where like the seed of, of this book came from. What was it about lockdown that changed your kind of mindset on how you were going to express your creativity? Because, you know, you, you speak about reading these doorstoppers initially. I, I think lockdown was when I finally decided I was going to read A Little Life. Oh my God, the worst possible time to read that depressing book. Well, I didn't know what it was about (laughs) and it made me sad. Um, But no, I agree. Like it was the only time that I was ever going to get to read a 
800 an 800 page, page yeah. novel right but yeah what was it about lockdown that changed that for you i mean well actually maybe i'll rephrase that what did lockdown change in your brain i think i'm a fundamentally quite lazy person and so i would never i like and, and i i've been saying for over well over a decade i'm gonna write a book and then i just never did um, and part of that was like, I, I, I don't think I never settled on like the one idea that I really, really wanted to focus on. Um, but like, I started half a dozen and then like, I would just get bored and move on to something else. And I think part of what lockdown did for me was because obviously everything was so out of control and we, were, we all felt so helpless. I started to do things that made me feel like I had some control and that would add structure to my day because, you know, None of us knew what day it was at any point, unless drag race was on and then you knew it was a Thursday. So I got really, really into exercise. That was when I started running. Um, and that, that I think also helped me in terms of like just, I, I don't like meditate or anything, but it was quite mindful because it was the one time that I wasn't like looking at my phone. I was out, I was in the nature getting fresh air. Um, and it was just me and my thoughts. And I think even subconsciously like, that would help me like work through ideas and stuff. And I just got a lot more like regimented in my daily routine because otherwise I was going to go a bit mad. Um, and I mean, we all did, but, you know, even madder. And then I just had all this spare time and sort of restless energy that normally I wouldn't. So it was like, right, well, if not now, when? And so I sat down and and, and I think I what was important was I put no pressure on myself. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a bash at it. And if nothing else happens, like, you know, I've tried, but ultimately it doesn't matter. No one else knows I'm doing this. I would feel a bit silly maybe if I told people I was doing this, but I'm just going to do it. And what was that though? Was that this kind of ego slash imposter syndrome side? I think it was more of like a, if I tell people I'm doing it and I don't finish it. Right. I'll Accountability. Be, I'll be embarrassed. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I just started it and um, there was this competition that Penguin was running um, for, at the time it was for a Christmas book. And so I sort of had this idea for like a kind of, heisty rom-com and i was like oh well i could set that at christmas and so i basically put together like a very brief proposal for it um i wrote a very very rough first chapter and i sent it off and i thought nothing else of it um and then ended up getting shortlisted for it and i was like oh wow okay um so i kept working at it and then it didn't go any further but by that point i was like oh i don't care about that it's a, it's definitely a summer book i want and because this was like spring 2021 when we were all still locked in it was like so cold and so dark. And I was like, no, no, I, I, I'm writing this because I want to be like on the beach reading a fun book. And so I'm just going to put all, I'm going to, I'm going to set it like over summer. It's going to be, there's going to be like a big sequence that's set in Italy because I just want to be eating pasta and drinking Aperol right now. And it sort of took on its life of its own where, uh, yeah, I was just like, it's not about the competition anymore. It's about me just like, actually, I've started telling myself this story and I want to see it through. Were you aware of that at the time? Probably not. Yeah, I think I realised this at, like, afterwards, but yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely an element of escapism. But what I mean, what I find interesting about that is that you started using your own writing as a way for you to kind of imagine not being in that space. Oh, 100%. I was just like playing make-believe and writing it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, go, but going back to those early school days of... It's exactly that. That's yeah. why we read. That's why I want to write. That's what I like about it. Mm. You literally were... I was escaping, yeah. I was I was in this tiny flat and it was just so miserable. 
Um, the heating did not even work properly as well. And this was like February, March, like just really grim. So I was like, okay, yeah, I, anywhere, if I could be anywhere but here, what, where would it be? And basically I was like, I want to be at a party with all my friends. Um, and that's why the book set at a wedding. <laughs> Drinking Aperol. Drinking everything. <laughs> okay. And how long did the book take to write? Uh, so I started it um, early February 2021. Then I signed with my agent on the first, I think like 15,000 words. And that was in around July. And no, maybe maybe it was the first 30,000 words. I can't remember. Um, But basically she was, she said to me, can you finish the book by the start of September? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, But what I said was, yes, of course. And yeah, so the first draft, I think it was like the 10th of September or something. Okay. Only 10 days late. Yeah. Well, and it was like, she she was like early September. It was a loose deadline. Uh, yeah, I was like, I was like, I, I think I can, yeah. And actually having like a deadline in mind was great because otherwise I, may, I might never have finished it. But like as soon as I'd signed with Florence, my agent, I was like, oh, this is starting to feel more like it's not just like a thing that I'm doing. I'm like somebody else wants to read it now. Somebody else like, there's like, there's more stakes involved. This feels a bit more like a job. Therefore, I am more accountable. Therefore, I have to keep... I have to keep showing up. I can't just like put it in a drawer for six months and, you know, be like, oh, I'll come back to it. And at this point, are you doing this full time? So I was, I was, I'm, I was still working for men's health. I was, I worked, I was very, very lucky in that I worked throughout the pandemic. But even when everything sort of started to open up again that summer, it was still very much like, right, well, I, I, I have to be doing my words today because yeah, somebody actually wants me to want, you know, wants me to finish this. And if you don't write those words, it's not going to get finished. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and But even then I had like such low expectations. I was like, well, okay, I, I have an agent and that's great. But that's like step one in a very, very long process. And I was like, oh, you know, and maybe if I finish it, maybe she won't like it. Maybe she actually, maybe she'll want me to, to write something else, you know. Or, um, or maybe, you know, she'll take it out on submission and it won't sell because this whole business is so competitive and there's so much great stuff out there. So I was still sort of, keeping the stakes sort of as far out of my head as possible because I was like well this could be something or it could be nothing and I think telling myself it could be nothing gave me the freedom to actually just like write the story I wanted to write rather than maybe I don't know cater to some imaginary audience. Have you found that when there's been kind of external factors that have been imposed on you that your creativity has suffered because of that? Oh hugely so um, I mean right now I'm very late finishing my second book. And the reason for this, and, and it's apparently it's a real thing. I've, I, my, my agent's told me this. I've chatted to author friends about this. Like the second book is immensely harder. And like, you would think it would be easier because you've proven that you can do it. And you've proven that you can write a book that sells and that people like, you know, that, that editors will, will acquire. But then it's now it's like, right, well, contracts have been signed. Money has changed hands. People are expecting it. And there is like, you know, it's going to be coming out next year. So you really have to finish it. That like last, I, I spent all of last year just not knowing how the hell to finish this book. Was it that the ideas weren't coming? Um, the ideas were all there. It was just like, it, it was the act of sitting down and actually getting the words out. Like I had some weird block in my brain and I, I can't even like explain it. It just, yeah, like I had this thing where I, it just, it just wasn't happening. Was it an element of self-doubt that was stopping you from doing it? I think it was, which is, it's counterintuitive because I'd sort of, like I said, I'd proven that I could do it and that I could make it 
I, I had it in me to write a book that people would want to read. Um, I think it was just like, it became, yeah, it became a bit of like a fear of like, oh, am I a one trick pony? Or like, oh, like everyone seemed to love the first one so much. Like, what if this one isn't as good? What if, like, what if I can't do it again? Um, and also like the first book hadn't come out yet. So I was like, I, I don't know if readers are going to like me enough to read a second one because I don't know what the response to the first one has been yet outside of like people in the industry you know like my my publisher and that well that must be really hard as well because if you if you've received this acclaim from your peers of this is good enough for us to pay you for this is mm. good enough to land you in this space that you've dreamt of being in oh and by the way we want two of them <laughs> yeah do another one yeah do yeah. another one um <laughs> And then all of a sudden you're like, well, hang on a minute, nobody's actually read it and you now want another one off me. Mm. Yeah, that must be really hard to deal with. Because I think, like, coming from journalism, everything you write is kind of informed by the feedback you've had on what you've done previously. And that's obviously not the case here. There's, yeah, it was sort of a lot of, like, overthinking and self-doubt and basically uh, what I just had to do was really get out of my own way. How do you trust yourself to know that you're good enough oh wow i mean that's a that is a big question i i I don't know that you do i think you have to be like well this might be shit but you have to do it anyway because otherwise you'll never know um i think i i i've basically had to have have, have a word with myself where it's like if if i write this draft and it turns out to be the worst thing anyone has ever written that's the worst case scenario but also like you have an editor who will help you make it better and so it's like, it's, yeah. and, and it's the, it's the, it's the sort of the cliche of like anything, you know, the first, the first draft, the first sketch, like the first time you try a new recipe, you've got to give yourself freedom to get it wrong. And then you know that, well, that's the worst case scenario and then the next time will be better. And then, you know, the more you work on it, the better it'll get. Um, and I think I, I've been putting pressure on myself to make something perfect the first time. And now it's more a case of like, I'm, I'm weeks out from finishing this draft and it's like, I'm actually just having fun with being getting weird with it and being more specific and trying new things. And then it's like, if none of it works, that's fine. We'll rein it back in. But like, this is the time to just not, not think about it. I spoke about it in the last episode. It's, it's interesting how many of these themes keep coming up, but this idea of reframing failure, failure has such negative connotations to it when actually mm. it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. And we spoke in the last episode about actually, if you reframed what success meant to you, you'd probably have a better way of dealing with failure as you see it at the moment. You'd probably oh, absolutely, see it as yeah. something completely different. How do you see failure as a concept? I think my idea of failure would be if I were to like put something out into the world, whether it's an article or a book or you know a short story or anything, and failure would be if people just didn't give a crap. I think even if I send that, I put it out into the world and everyone hated it, I'm like, well, at least they've engaged with it. But if it's, I think if I put something out into the world that was just like so insipid and bland that people didn't have an opinion one way or the other, I think that would be like really, that would be more soul-destroying than everyone hating it. So you still attribute failure to other people's opinions of your work? <laughs> um I guess you're writing bit, for other yeah, people. I mean, yeah. you're writing for yourself, but at the end of the day, you are writing novels for people. So I think, I, I, I'll give you that. I think, or maybe, I think also if I, if I, if I put something out there that like ultimately I couldn't stand by, like, for, like if, if maybe a, a, a 
deadline came racing up and I was like, oh, fuck it, this will do. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put this out. And then I couldn't be proud of it because I hadn't done my best. Maybe, maybe that as well. But that's more of like a, yeah, that's like a personal thing. But I think in, in terms of like professional failure, I think is, it's sort of like more about what the outside world says. How do you differentiate your personal creativity to your professional creativity? Because I'd argue that now they're very... Well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah, so like my day job at the magazine, um, I'm quite able to sort of differentiate because I'm writing about other people. I'm writing about real life things. I can put less of myself into that. And that's more like, it's easier to distance myself from that and, and to not feel, to not take it so personally. Whereas, yeah, with the book, it's a dream job, but it's still a job. And yeah, it's sort of when when I get like edit edit notes back, it's like the first instinct is still just to take everything to heart so much. Um, and I think it's, and I've spoken to, you know, friends of mine who are authors who've written multiple books and they say, oh, they still have like the same, the same really like hypersensitive gut reaction because ultimately like you've created this thing from your own brain. It's like your own little baby and you have to have a thick skin, but like that does not come naturally. You really have to learn that. I think there's a massive misunderstanding from industry or from people outside of the creative canon, we'll mm. say, be it whether you're in agency or whether you're in a house at a brand or whether you're, I don't know, um, anywhere. Anywhere in anywhere that requires creativity for a commercial gain. Mm-hmm. There's a massive misunderstanding from people who don't consider themselves creative what creativity requires of the person working in that field. To put so much of yourself into that. Yeah. To then get feedback where in other people's minds, maybe it's completely disassociated from you as a person, but actually in your head, no, no, like that's, you've birthed that. Right. So, um, bit of a tangent, but Drag Race All-Stars 2. Okay. Um, episode one. They, they always open with a talent show, right? And Adore Delano gets absolutely panned by the panel. Um, she, she does a song and Michelle Visage just like tears her to shreds. And afterwards she's like in the, um, in the workroom sort of like in tears. And she's like, I wrote that song. And it's like, I can't imagine how that would feel to like, I wrote, you know, to write a song that you're really proud of that you think expresses something about who you are as a person or how you felt or a situation that you've lived through. And then for somebody that you really admire in a professional setting to say, no, that was awful. Like soul destroying. It's true of so much of the publishing world where, and you know, whether it's memoir or, or, or fiction, we put so much of ourselves into it. Like every character I've created is in some way, some sort of funhouse mirror version of some aspect of me. Every decision you've made is a personal decision yeah. that's being brought out into the world through something which feels a side of you, away mm. from you. It's it's something, yes, fair enough, it's something you created, but it's something separate to you. But actually it's not. It's all you. It's all yeah. your idea. It's all. It wouldn't exist without you. And it's one thing that, and I'm going to do one of those TikToks where it's like things I don't want to hear again. Yeah. Like when you point to the notes, yeah. but like the amount of what's put forward as constructive feedback. And if you give constructive feedback, great. If, you, if you're if you kind of respectful of that. But the amount of feedback that's under the guise of being constructive, where they are just, the people who are giving it are just completely 
unaware that for a creative person to produce anything of any substance they care about, and you just made the point around saying like a failure to you would be the fact that you couldn't stand by it. Mm. So to, to offer up work that you care about, that you stand by, to then have it critiqued, fair enough, constructively good. But if it's not, and it becomes quite subjective, which often creativity is, it's so hard for a creative person to take that on board and to stomach. And I think people don't understand that. And yeah, and so often if it's if critique is offered and it's framed as being, you know, constructive, but really it's like, well, no, this is just your opinion. You just think you know better than me. like. And you might have a position of power, so you've all of a sudden decided this needs to change. Right. And yeah, I, I have had some very um, intense conversations uh, in professional settings where somebody in a position of power thought they knew better than me. <laughs> the The sales team at my publisher had some opinions about the cover and what should be on the cover of the book. And I was like, you are so wrong, but you are the sales team and you are the ones who like determine what kind of cover is going to sell the most and make us the most money. So like people are really listening to you, but you are not coming at this from a, I'm like, have you read the book? Do you know what the book is about? By suggesting this unhinged idea, it makes no sense. It's going to make me look really bad. I don't want my name on the cover if that's what it's going to look like. And then in the end, we have to come to a very sort of um, tense compromise. But it was that sort of thing of like, you you think you know better, but you're not coming at it from a creative standpoint. You're coming at it from a commercial one. And I think it's when the creative and the commercial sort of go hand in hand that a lot of the time you end up having to have this sort of really gnarly, like uncomfortable, un uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. It happens a lot in in kind of in my industry and in advertising and stuff as well. Like the the amount, the sheer amount of bullshit conversations I have to have, which most of the time aren't based on any form of data. When you actually break it down, when you really start to peel back the layers and you start to, you know, I, I feel like as a creative, because we're quite curious, we can get to the point very quickly if we ask the right questions, because we spend our life asking questions. What if? Mm. How are we going to do this? Maybe I'll do that. The moment you peel back a couple of layers, it's like, oh, this is all because you want your opinion put into this work. Yeah, it's like, oh, you want your name to be there on the email chain. It's you. you want to have been a part of the decision-making process and it doesn't really matter what you said as long as you said something. And so you're kind of going to like stamp all over the people who've been working on this for months because you just happen to be part of this like, you know, sign-off stage or whatever. Um, and you and I have both had conversations like previously about how maddening that can be. Oh, it's infuriating. Completely infuriating. How do you deal with the commercial side getting in the way of creative integrity. I'm in a very fortunate position at the moment, which is I'm the author. I, uh, I, I really, I was like, oh, and the thing is, I was like, I don't want to be difficult to work with. I, I really want, and also like, you know, I have another book coming out with this publisher that I haven't written yet. I need to, I, I need to not like put anyone's back up. But at the same time, I have to really, like I say, I have to be able to stand by what we're putting out there. And so I basically, and that's what I said, I said at this, at present, I am really not happy with this. I would not be comfortable having my name on this. It like, it just, it so misrepresents the, the product that we've made, you know, it ended up working out absolutely fine. And I'm really, really happy with what we ended with what we got, but 
I think also being a freelancer um, was a great sort of um, experience because you learn to advocate for yourself and sort of really, it, and it takes a long time, but it like to, to argue what you're worth. Um, I think a lot of freelancers make that early mistake of like they they undersell themselves. They will they'll, they'll give like a really really low quote for a job, um, and so then the work is undervalued. And it's only when you've been doing it a while that you're like, no no, I'm, I'm worth more actually. And also, if I quote more and I say this is the price, people more often than not will pay it. But you have to really say it with your chest and say this is what I'm worth. Um, rather than kind of being, you know, rather than like apologizing for yourself while sending an invoice. It's like, no, no, you did the work, send the invoice. This is, this is a very simple process. You have value and you should be paid as such. You should, you know, you should get the attention and the respect that you deserve. Mm. Um, and it doesn't come naturally because I think creative people are so used to any kind of creative discipline being undervalued in a professional setting. What's the biggest lesson that you've learnt, you think, through your creativity? I don't know if it's a lesson, but I think one of the, the best things I've gotten out of it is through various avenues of, of creativity. I've, I've, it's the people I've met. And I think being exposed to a wider array of perspectives. In terms of lessons, actually, yeah, I, would, I would say maybe it's the same thing. I think it's, it's your ideas are yours, but you need to absorb as much of the world around you as possible. And you make the art, but then... So much of the people you know goes into you to going into the making of the art. Mm-hmm. Um, so that experience, yeah, yeah, and I, connection. I, I, yeah, I think yes. Yeah, so I just like saying saying yes to experiences and 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 engaging with everyone in an earnest and intentional way and meeting people where they are and seeing the world through their eyes. I mean, I think that's just a good rule for being a person in general. Yeah, that's how you end up, you know, figuring out how to tell a story. I think creativity brings community kind of by default. I feel like mm. when you meet other creatively minded people, there's an instant, oh, we understand each other. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, if yeah. I meet someone who considers themselves, and, I'm, and I will advocate for the fact that everybody is creative, but when I meet someone who has not yet allowed creativity to enter their life, <laughs> I will put it, instantly I'm like, wow, we're talking a very different language and... I can't express myself around you. You don't have that same shorthand. Like I, one of the the most fun bits about my publishing journey has been becoming friends with other professional authors. Like, yeah, just like you have a, a real shared experience that is really, really wonderful. And I think this is where going back to like, you know, the, the internet and the social media thing. I think that's where it's a, a real force for good. Because it means that anyone with, you know, sort of uh, a, who wants a creative outlet, who has something to say and they're just trying to figure out the world and their art is the the way that they're, they're doing that, um, they're going to find other artists and other people making stuff and telling stories um, who are going to kind of get it. They're going to understand them. And I think that's what, that, that's what any form of like storytelling or art is all about. We all just want to be understood. How has your creativity helped you to find a place in the world? I think it's it's through what I was just saying. It's the, it's the people that you meet. It's the, the other writers. I think I have a far greater sense of self and, and the world and my place in it now than I did even a few years ago. And also I think like everything you make helps you figure out a little bit more. Um, it wasn't until 
my mum read my book. I thought I just made up a lot of fiction and it was all completely, you know, imaginary. And then my mum read it and she was like, oh, well, no, well, this is like, this is very much you. And this is very much some, like the way that you see yourself. And I hadn't, and that made me think, and I was like, oh, okay. And maybe that's a good thing. And maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that's something that I need to, you know, ruminate on a little bit. Had you realised that at the time when you were writing it? No, not at all. I had no, I had zero perspective on it. I, because I was so close to it. Um, and I was just like, so focused on getting it out um, that I hadn't realised how much of myself I'd put into it. I'm a bit more aware with the second book. I'm very aware that a lot of it is <laughs> very much me. <laughs> I mean, they say write what you know. Write what you know, yeah. Um, and that's not necessarily like, oh, like write, you know, a story that is based entirely on your life and the people in it. And it has to be sort of semi-autobiographical. It's more just elements of your life will make it into what you do no matter what, like the, you know, fragments of the people you know, experiences you've had. But the great thing about imagination is it's like, none of it's new. It's just like reality remixed. It's like when you have a dream and you're walking through a house and it might be the house you grew up in and then you'll turn a corner and it's your old school. And then, you know, you'll be talking to one person, but then they turn into another person. Like that's what having an imagination is. It's just like all of these ingredients are thrown into a pot together and you have no idea what sort of, final form they're going to take it's a different perspective at the end of the day right like i think that's similar for a lot of different physical practices of creativity be that art or writing or photography or whatever it's if you're bringing a different perspective to something that somebody already knows that's where it becomes special and that's where it becomes personal as well well and that's yeah that's another lesson that i've really learned is um like don't try to make something that's going to be really like for like for as many people as possible. You have to make something really, really specific from your specific perspective, your point of view. And in doing that and, and in making it entirely like unique, that's going to potentially be the thing that makes it appealing to the masses. Because if you write, write something or make something that you think everyone's going to like, it's like, well, they might think it's okay, but they're not going to really like it. It's like a lot of blockbuster movies that, you know, you can tell they've been written by like 10 different people and they've been going through, they've gone through like focus groups and test screenings because all of the bits that might have been like particularly funny or interesting or exciting, they've all sort of just been sanded down a little bit just to make it as crowd pleasing as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's less room for eccentricity and weirdness because it's it's so by committee. Um, and I think one of the, best ways you can honor your own creativity is to just yeah be as specific and niche as possible creativity is all about having an opinion mm. like i don't, if you don't have an opinion can you be creative i'd argue that you've struggled to or i'd argue that your creativity won't be as honest or what you put out into the world I, won't be as honest i think part of any creative practice is just sitting down and thinking and figuring out what you think mm-hmm. and what you believe and obviously I can only speak about writing because that's, that's, that's what I do. But like the ideas that I have a lot of the time come from an opinion I have. And this is like that, that, that originated was, you know, when I was doing like the, the personal essays and the, the features and, and the op-eds um, in my day job. It's like, oh, I, I have this thought. And I know often it would be like, I would tweet something like a bit of a spicy take that like I was, like, oh, I really strongly believe this. And then an editor would be like, oh, actually like, can you, can you like get a feature out of that? Like that, that's something that, might resonate with people or, or it might just be like that's an opinion we haven't really heard before people might hate it people might think you're you're wrong but like 
let's explore it. And, and often it would be like in the process of writing the article that would help me figure out what I really, really thought. And I'd be like, oh, maybe, well, maybe actually, no, I don't believe as strongly this. It's more, it's more this instead. But I think creating forces you to think what you, what you believe and, and, and what your stance is on certain things. And a lot of the time I think a knee jerk, oh, well, obviously I think this, um, that's fine for a tweet. But then if you're going to, you know, make a piece of art or a piece of work about it, you have to go a little deeper. I love that thought that actually creativity is going to teach us more about ourselves. Because I think a lot of the time we we think a lot about we guide the creative thinking when actually sometimes the actual act of thinking or creating can teach us a lot about ourselves as well. Absolutely. A few quick fire questions. I think I already know the answer to this first one. <laughs> um, but for you, what's more important the process of making the work or the final product? Oh, I, 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 they're, they're, they're so different. Like, I think there are, there's so much about the process that is really enjoyable. Like, it's just the most, it's the most fun to, to, to be making things up and playing around with ideas, but also parts of it are really hard and it's really solitary and boring. Having the final product where you can show it to people is really exciting, but then it's like, then you're like, oh God, now other people are going to like read it or look at it and have an opinion about it. And there's a, a risk and a self-consciousness that comes with that that takes me all the way back to, oh, well, what if, my, what if I don't fit in? What if my peers don't like me? <laughs> so I think, I, think, um, I think maybe, yeah, the, the safe cocoon of like the process when it's not out in the world yet and it's a bit more safe, I think, I think the first one. Do you think that creativity informs your identity? Or is your identity informed by your creativity? Oh, both. 100% both. Um, I, I, I identify as a writer and so much of my identity is, is sort of bound up in what I do. Um, I do think of it as like, as a who I am to the point where like my friend, I have a friend who is very, very similar and we've had to have conversations about like, but like your value as a person is not tied to your output because that's a very capitalist point of view. But also like my identity does inform my creativity because I'm a queer person. That is a huge part of the work I'm doing. Um, also my identity as like a white cis man absolutely like shapes my, it shapes the way I move through the world and how I experience everything. So I feel like it, it can't not influence the way that I write as well. And I think I just always have to be conscious of that. What can those listening take away from your creative journey? Don't take yourself or your work too seriously, especially when you're in the process of making it. Like you have to get some joy out of it because the tortured artist is like a really popular image, but like your art is not worth suffering for. I genuinely believe that. Like if you're making something great, but like put yourself first, don't put so much of yourself into the work that there's nothing left in you and just like yeah have 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 fun don't take yourself too seriously uh and 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 i would also say you know maybe don't always like not every single thing you do has to be monetized like some things are really nice like some creative pursuits are really really lovely when it's just for you it's not like a side hustle it's not your day job it's just like you're you're just like you know, enjoying drawing a picture or you're taking up, you know, sewing or painting or pottery. And it doesn't have to be good and it doesn't have to be something you sell. It's just something that you do because ultimately like the act of making something is really 
really fun. Those moments when you just create for yourself, when you get the time in between writing two debut novels, <laughs> what do they what do they do for you? What do they offer you? It's I think it's like it's quite relaxing. It's quite therapeutic. I love uh, baking and cooking because I'm using my hands, so I'm not looking at a screen. You can turn off the higher brain function because really, it's like it's you're doing things by feel and by touch and by taste and by smell, um, and so it sort of gets me out of my head a little bit. And you can just be a little bit more like you can work on instinct. Like when you're when you're stirring, a di- I, I don't like measure or weigh anything. I do it all by feel. Because when you're like mixing, you know, dough or whatever, like you know when it's the right consistency by how it feels like in your hands or like on the spoon. And I just, yeah, sort of it's it's completely away from the sitting at your laptop where you're staring at the screen. And it's so much about the combination of words or whatever. It's just like it feels a bit more primal. I love that idea of exploring other senses different to those you would normally use as a mm. way to kind of give yourself a palate cleanser, but still be creative. Yeah, because it just feels like playing. Mm. You know, it's like, like honestly, like Play-Doh. Like, who doesn't love that? <laughs> I was Lego. Oh, I mean, Lego too. Yeah, making things with your hands, there's something like just, like, no matter what it is, it just, there's something deeply satisfying about it. And I think maybe it's because, yeah, it takes us back to being kids. Mm. Can you give everybody a little synopsis of your debut novel? Absolutely, yeah. Um, So it is called Love and Other Scams. Um, It follows Kat, who is about to turn 30. She is a broke freelancer. Um, See what I mean about basing things (laughs) very much on myself. She's a a broke freelancer who... um, has sort of been driven to desperate ends to make to make ends meet because she's been going to all her friends' very, very lavish weddings. Uh, and so she's discovered that her special creative talent is thievery. Uh, and so she is a little bit of a scammer. She's a little bit of a pickpocket. And when her wealthy frenemy from art school gets engaged to the wealthiest man in London, she decides to attend the wedding uh, and steal the ring. And so she recruits a bartender called Jake uh, to be her plus one and pretend to be her partner. And together they orchestrate a jewel heist. And where can people find this book? So it is out on uh, Kindle and Audible right now in the UK. It's out on paperback in the States. Available everywhere. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to Self-Esteem. Find out more information about this week's guests in the show notes. Follow us at Self Esteem, that's S L F E S T M everywhere. And check out our website for extended interviews and more episodes. Selfesteem.com, S L F E S T M. If you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. It all helps. See you next episode for another journey into creativity.